Hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, and all people of goodwill. Welcome to another episode of Let's Do Lunch with the Avalon Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, William J. Lasseter. As Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Every person has a story, and each episode of Let's Do Lunch, we sit down with an interesting person over a good meal and a glass of libation to hear their perspective, their background, their story. All this to help you cast off the works of darkness and put upon you the armor of light. Remember, if you enjoy the show, would you kindly smash the like button and also give the show a positive review on whatever platform you're surfing on. In this episode of Let's Do Lunch, I have a discussion with Mr. Raymond Reefmeyer. I had the pleasure of meeting Ray when I worked with his incomparably talented wife at a local parochial school in Minnesota. Ray is a man of many talents. He is on the board of the Sherlock Holmes Society, the Norwegian Explorers, vice president of the Friends of Sherlock Holmes, and was recently inducted into the Baker Street Irregulars out of New York. He contributes to various fiction collections and worked on a publication about the character the Shadow. <laughs> Ray and I share a common love of movies, comic books, collectibles, and prog rock. In this episode, we discuss the history of comic books, the turn that comics took in the 1980s, and the future of comics as contributing to a vision of heroism and nobility in our culture. What is the value of comics as a medium? Why do people appreciate comics, superheroes, and the accompanying movies so much? And what is the future of this distinctly American art form. All this and more can be found in this episode of Let's Do Lunch with Avalon Mentors Podcast. Well, well welcome Ray Reefmeyer to my, my show here, my podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Um, this is for both of us a sort of a new experience, but it's one which I think could be a very profitable venue to talk about certain issues. So normally what I like to do is I like to establish who you are and where you come from. And I'll start by establishing who I am and where I come from. And then I'll, I'll let you take a, a crack at it yourself. Uh, I'm William J. Lasseter. I have been a teacher for 25 plus years. Uh, I grew up in a family where I was constantly reading comic books and watching movies and listening to all kinds of music, including Celtic and rock and roll. I was a radio announcer for seven years. Um, I was a collector of all sorts of memorabilia. And now I am doing tutoring and teaching in the area in Minneapolis. So how about yourself? All right. Well, Thank you for inviting me to join you here, Will. This is my first experience in this sort of endeavor. I am an attorney. I work as an editor for a major law publisher and have been doing that for the last 25 years. I'm originally from Rochester, New York, where I grew up in a family that, like yours apparently, um, had a priority on reading, uh, but we also enjoyed 
you know, television and movies and a lot of the 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 sorts of things that my parents introduced me to as a child are the things that have stuck with me throughout mm. the the intervening years so my dad was uh, an avid reader of classic science fiction like mm. Edgar Rice Burroughs and my mom was a, a devoted reader of mysteries like Agatha Christie and, mm. and Arthur Conan Doyle and between the two of them I became interested in all of that sort of thing <laughs> and but as a kid it was comics for me that where I really found my my greatest interest and I think my parents were of the sort to encourage me to read those comics because I was enthusiastic about them so they did not ever try to discourage me from reading anything so long as I wanted to read they made sure I had the available things to keep me occupied so I am grateful to my parents for encouraging me to follow those passions and uh, as I as, as I matured or didn't as the case may be I <laughs> uh, developed more of an interest in sort of where these characters originated and found myself uh, almost uh, backhandedly finding an interest in the same things that my parents liked. And so I discovered that, you know, a lot of the, the superheroes had a history in the old pulp fiction from the 1930s and 40s, which themselves were uh, a, a development from the old dime novels and things from the turn of the century. And authors like Conan Doyle and Edgar Rice Burroughs cut their teeth in those in those publications. And, and and so just to see that there's sort of a, a linear progression from the, the dime novels of 120 years ago to the pulp fiction of the 30s and 40s to the comic books of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, you know, by the time I found them in the 70s, I just find that a, a fascinating progression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I, I had a similar thing with my old man. You know, he was um, a very well-educated man, but his downtime was always reading things. So um, he was reading either Pulp Fiction, like you're talking about, Robert E. Howard. He was a big fan of Conan, uh, or he would read H.G. Wells, um, or he was sitting there reading uh, tw- Classics Illustrated, or he was reading uh, Tarzan of the Apes, you know, the comic book version um he and so he at an early age got us subscriptions they sent it to us in the mail up there in michigan and we were all excited with shaking hands as we opened these packages from the mail with a brown wrapper and got green lantern you know or whatever it was or spider-man or what have you so um very much growing up with that 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 uh sense that this was a this was an exciting and important world for us um so uh you said for instance, that you uh, were delving into uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes as well. Uh, My understanding is that you were the president, is that right, of Sherlock Holmes Society locally. Is that that true? It's close. Uh, I'm I'm a member of the local group, the Norwegian Explorers of Minnesota, Mm -hmm. 
which takes its name from the uh, the role that Sherlock Holmes took after he apparently died battling Professor Moriarty. Uh, he then disappeared for three years, and upon his return, he tells Watson, you may have heard of the Norwegian explorer named Seegerson. And so the local society embraced that notion. A lot of folks being of Norwegian descent said, yes, we will be the Norwegian explorers. And cool. So that's that's where the name of our local group that's awesome. originated. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a member. I'm on the board of yeah. that group. Um, there's also a uh, a very large collection of Sherlock Holmes materials at the University of Minnesota. And so there's a uh, a friends group, the friends of the Sherlock Holmes collection. Oh. And I am the vice president of that board. So th I, I am very active locally. And it's through my, my local activities with the Sherlock Holmes uh, organizations that uh, I started participating with the national, actually international organization, the Baker Street Irregulars that meet every January in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I was very pleased this last January that I got invested into the Baker Street Irregulars, uh, which is a, you know, a, a fairly exclusive organization. There's about 300 members worldwide. And to have been invited to join as an actual, what they call investitured member is, is quite an honor for a Sherlock Holmes fan. It is. Congratulations. That's actually fantastic. I think I remember seeing that. How did that come about? Was that simply because of your uh, activity there in the Friends of Sherlock Holmes and the Explorers, or did you publish something? It's it's mostly for my, for my activities. Um, I think it's that um, over the years, I, I've been working with our, our local group. Uh, I, I've co-edited our quarterly newsletter. Uh, once a year, we have a, uh, a, a pamphlet called our Christmas Annual that comes out in December. And it, that, that uh, is aiming to be sort of a, a, a scholarly journal of sorts. So our members contribute based on a particular theme that we choose each year. And, uh, and that, that Christmas annual has historically been distributed to all members of the Baker Street Irregulars. So it's mm -hmm. just one of those things that um, my predecessor who founded the Christmas annual uh, 20 years ago, who is a member of the Baker Street Regulars, thought it would be a neat thing to to share that publication from our local group with all the the national and international members as sort of a way to raise the the profile of the Norwegian explorers. So for the last 20 years or so, the Christmas annual has been shared that way. And so all the Baker Street regulars have been aware of this publication and get to see what our local group is doing and what we're contributing to the Holmesian scholarship. And when I took over uh, editing the Christmas annual, what, about six, seven years ago, um, I'm sure that helped raise my profile in the group. But that alone isn't enough. I mean, if you really want to be 
considered for membership in the Bakersfield regulars. You need to be uh, active to the point that you will go to their January meetings in New York City. Um, and they have a, a dinner that's by invitation only, but there's a lot of activities. It's almost like a convention of yeah. sorts. Um, but because this group was founded back in the 1930s, they never really thought of themselves as fandom per se. They thought of themselves as you know, a literary society of, of like-minded people who would gather once a year to, to uh, have their dinner, their interests, and and it's been going on since since the 1930s, and it's grown yeah. such that around that annual dinner, which is by invitation only, there's a lot of other activities that happen in New York City in in January um, that other Sherlockians uh, can join and and be part of. So it in that sense, it is sort of like a convention around that weekend when the BSI has their dinner, there's a lot of other Sherlockian stuff that happens. And so Sherlockians from around the country and around the world will descend on New York City to do these Sherlockian things. And some of them get the invite to the dinner. And um, I started going to New York a few years back when one of my my local Sherlockian friends encouraged me and said, you really need to go to New York. If you ever want to you know, really get your name out there with the, with the BSI, you need to start going to the New York things in January. It's like, well, I'll go once. I'll see what it's like. And I went and I realized these, these are, these are good people. I, I enjoy their company. Um, yeah. That's so, yeah. So I, I've gone a few years and, Two years ago, I got my first dinner invitation, which kind of changed things too. I actually hadn't been planning to go that year. Um, and then I got the dinner invite and it's like, well, I guess I'm going. And <laughs> and so I got two dinner invites in, in a row. And then this last year was my third invitation. But because of the, the difficulties that the world has been facing, this year they, they had a virtual dinner and i remember telling one of my Sherlockian friends i said this would be the perfect year for me to get invested because it's virtual and and i in all candor do not like being in the spotlight and just that notion of being able to get the, to get in the group without having to be there and you know, have everyone's eyes on me. That to me was very appealing. Um, yeah. yeah, and then and then it actually happened. I I I don't know how the rest of the people who got invested. There, I was in a class of I think ten uh, who got who, who joined this year, and I don't know if any of them feel like they missed out on something by getting invested in this remote virtual year. But for me, it couldn't have been more perfect. <laughs> Well, congratulations on that. There's a there's a lot there that you were just saying that was wonderful to uh, to to tease out a little bit here. One of the biggest things that comes to mind, you said that when you met these people or saw these people, they were just good people, and yeah. that's which I've experienced frequently when I meet folks that like, as I'm calling it, these esoteric things. 
they enjoy prog rock, you know, or they enjoy Star Trek or they enjoy um, Studio Ghibli. They're just the good people that enjoy these things and hold these things to be very, very important. So it kind of raises a question. Um, first off, why, why do you think that so much energy and so much effort and scholarship, as you said, is poured out on things which, which some folks, I suppose, consider to be, um, I don't know, uh, second, second tier maybe, or not, 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 uh, not academic enough. Why do you think that um, so, some folks see it as so important? They you know, have huge discussions over, over Studio Ghibli or have huge discussions over Star Trek versus Star Wars. Why do you think that happens? Well, that's a good question. I suppose it's the easy answer is anything about which people feel passionate will be something they want to discuss. Mm -hmm. And I think with, as you describe, these esoteric kind of things that aren't necessarily considered mainstream interests, a lot of people, at this point, I don't want to overgeneralize, I'll just speak from my own experience. I think I spent most of my youth with my hobbies really feeling I'm the only one I know who likes this stuff. <laughs> yes. you know, in, in my high school, you know, nobody else liked prog rock. Nobody else liked comic books. Nobody else liked Sherlock Holmes. Um, you know, some people liked Star Trek or Star Wars, but most of the things that really captured my interest, I, I did not know anyone else uh, who shared that. So when, when the world opened up with the internet and making it so much easier to discover that there were other like-minded people, it, it, it opened up a, a whole new avenue of intellectual pursuits to say, I'm yeah. not alone and I can share my opinions about something without people's eyes glazing over. Because yeah. before then, you know, when I was younger, if I would spend a few minutes discussing whatever you know how great the latest yes album was you know my friend's eyes would glaze over and yeah. i realized okay well we'll talk about something else yeah but yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a not not table conversation when you start going over how you know robert e howard is such an awesome writer or, or ian fleming is so much fun to read and yeah you're right uh i had in my circle because my family is very artistic but very academic I would frequently have aunts or uncles uh, look at me askance when I talked about those things, like somehow I shouldn't be doing them or they were, they were shameful somehow. Um, do, yeah, do you... It's very validating to discover other people who share your interests. Right. right. Yeah, I know the older that I get now, and I'm, I'm 51, uh, I, I, the older I get, I, the more I realize that, that, that what has come considered to be pop culture, so to speak, actually seems to be a much more powerful motivator and a much more powerful affectionate hobby for most people than what the academics say is important which you know it, for me it's like a it's almost like a canary in a coal mine you look at these things and like that's what the society values that's what people love that's where our society's trending it's not towards these 
these academic questions. It's towards questions about who the heck is Luke Skywalker, you know, and <laughs> would he throw his lightsaber over his shoulder when he's given it again? Um, so for that, that kind of, <laughs> you know, um, kind of leads me into uh, the question that I've, that's been, been in my mind ever since we discussed uh, a couple months ago, seems like, or years ago, almost, I br you brought up an issue about Frank Miller. And you brought up an issue about the modern uh, movies of, of the Marvel Universe, especially, but also DC. And I mentioned that to my daughter, and she's very intrigued by it. And so she asked me to find out more about where this came from. And so the genesis kind of of this interview was my discussion with her. Could you perhaps tell me first off and tell our audience, what is uh, when we talk about comic books, what do we mean by comics say versus graphic novels and what are these ages of the comics historically when we're looking at them okay well i'll try to keep it as as simple sure as i can comic books are like pamphlets magazines mm -hmm. uh, a relatively short publication uh in modern day it's 32 pages um, when they originated, they would be 64, 80, uh, much larger than they are today. But uh, nowadays, comic books tend to be 32 pages, uh, of which 21, 22 pages are story. The rest are editorial or advertising. So every month, a comic will be published about, say, Batman, and you'll get 22 pages of story usually continued until the next issue. Yeah. And the modern practice is that after a certain number of issues have been published, then they get collected into a paperback with six or eight or 10 or 12 issues, whatever is appropriate to tell close to a complete story. And that is now generally called a graphic novel i'm not entirely convinced that's the appropriate terminology for it but that's if you go into a bookstore you'll see the graphic novel shelf and that's most of what you'll see in there are collections of stories that had originally been published serially in comic books on a monthly basis it's not that dissimilar to what has been done for over a century with you know like uh, you know, Charles Dickens publishing a novel a chapter at a time, and then it gets published in a complete hardcover book. That's what comic books are doing these days, is publishing one chapter at a time until they get published in a, in, in a collected edition. Mm -hmm. but, but also, would you say that the, because it seems to me that the visual element is extremely important too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I was making the assumption that we knew that comic books are a visual medium. We've got the 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 artwork with the text. Um, it used to be that there was a lot more text attached to the artwork than there is today. Um, very early on, um, I guess if we want to back up even further, the the modern comic book as we know it can trace its origins back to the comic strips that appeared in newspapers. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And um, so those, <laughs> that, that just adds an extra 
step in the process that yeah. comic strips used to appear on and still do appear on a daily basis. But there were a lot more adventure stories in the early days of comic strips, continuing storylines that you'd get you know, three or four panels a day. And um, in the in, in the early days of comic book publishing, most comic books were simply collected comic strips. They take right. you know, a bunch of a bunch of comic strips and slap them together into a 64 or 80 page comic book and sell it. Um, the corporate predecessor of DC Comics was one of the first ones to realize that there could be a market for new original stories published in comic books. Hmm. And so th there was <laughs> some of the earlier titles made it clear that what they were getting were not just reprints. It was things like new fun comics or new adventure comics, things yeah. like that, where it's like, this is, these are not reprints folks. These are new stories. Yeah. And, and it was that, that development of saying, let's tell new kind of stories that gave birth to you know, a, a, new, a, a new medium, really, uh, instead of having these stories in three panels at a time, you could get a story, a complete original story you'd never seen before of a character that ran 10 pages, 12 pages, sometimes 20 pages back in, back in those early days. And the, they were they were popular. They they sold on the same newsstands that that sold you know, the pulp fiction magazines. So you know, a, a father might be picking up a, a a magazine with the latest adventures of the shadow, and their kids would want something too. And there were the comic books for them on the same newsstands, and a lot of characters, a lot of publishers realized that what they needed to do was to feed that market with exciting visual characters. And yeah. and um, the real turning point was in 1938 when when DC Comics, uh, actually it was uh, uh, national publications then, uh, okay. published the first issue of action comics that introduced the character of Superman, Superman. the the first superhero and yeah. and and it was hugely popular and all wow. the other publishers realized we need to jump on this bandwagon and start publishing characters like that and and it, it proliferated and and while there were still you know the funny animal comics, like based on on the Walt Disney characters, Donald Duck, and you know all. There's always a variety of types of comics. There were romance comics, there were war comics, there were funny animal comics. But when superheroes were introduced, it 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 changed the landscape, yeah. and and it became that became a new focus for the industry. So thirty eight, and that was Action Comics, right? That was that, super. That was the first one, yeah. That one, when it was introduced, it was a uh, Siegel and Schuster, I think, were the yes. authors. And I've always understood it that they were making something like a um, an answer to the uh, the violence that was going on in Europe against the Jewish community to a certain degree. 
as well as making a statement about how every man in America could be this kind of Superman in hiding, um, almost a metaphor for that. Does that true? It, it, that could be, yeah. In fact, uh, I know that, that Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster had both been trying to find the right place for this character. Um, essentially, they had they had this idea for a number of years and had tried to sell it as a newspaper strip, um, and it didn't work. And actually, the first issue of Action Comics was essentially their 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 first newspaper strip story that they had tried to sell and it had been rejected time and time again. And they just pasted it up into a comic book format, and and DC Comics. Um, decided we'll do that. And it was probably the, the, the best business decision they, they could have made. Um, yeah. But and, it, was, uh, it was National Comics at the time? Uh, National Comics, yeah. And actually, the, the, the interesting thing, well, interesting to me anyway, is that even though Superman was the character that, that introduced that whole notion of the superhero character, mm -hmm. um, it was the same publisher who knew that everyone else was trying to rip them off. They, 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 they decided to jump on their own bandwagon and introduced a bunch of other superheroes as well. And the next year, 1939 in the 27th issue of detective comics, they introduced the new character, the Batman. Wow. Uh, and, and it, that then became a huge success. And so those wow. were the two pillar characters for national was superman and batman and, and there was nothing at the time right no spider-man no hulk nothing like that no those those characters didn't come along until the 1960s so we're we're talking you know 30 years before sure. we, we saw the marvel characters of the of the 1960s okay and the creator of batman just for clarity is normally it says bob kane but bob do you kane. do you fall into the camp that says it's really bill finger who did the work they they did it together um and to 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 the reluctant credit of dc they recently within the last few years have acknowledged the role that that writer bill finger had bob kane was the artist bill finger was the writer mm -hmm. and and f for the for the first 70 plus years of of the batman's publications they always said batman created by bob kane but sometime in the last few years they've changed that and they now created by bob kane with bill finger i'm not real fond of the preposition with in there um, yeah. i think an and might have been more appropriate but um they they've they were reluctant to even acknowledge his role for so long um I think we'll we'll take what we can get at this point. So these characters that we know, uh, Batman and, and Superman, they go way back. They're really kind of, as you said, they're pillars of this whole comics industry. And there was, if I'm understanding it right, there was like an explosion of copycats soon after that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. DC was very careful about, well, national. Um, right. Let, let, me, let me tell this quick digression so that I can get away with calling them DC. Once, uh, w once Batman was introduced in Detective Comics, that became a huge seller for them. And 
and national publications actually changed their name to Detective Comics. They oh. took the name of that comic as as their as their name, oh. which eventually became shortened as DC. They started using the the DC uh, letters on the cover to as their brand and so even when they they corporately were still known as national they were using the dc letters to identify their publications on the cover that's cool yeah. and even the even the symbol if i remember right is a circle and it's like black and blue or something like that like batman yeah. colors <laughs> yeah well it, it, it's it's been published in a variety of styles they, they do change the way they present their logo and um for a while they the, probably the longest lasting uh, version of their logo was one called the dc bullet that they were using from the 70s up until the 2000s um and it was the letters dc in a circle with with four stars around it um and i think the, i think it was called a bullet because it looked like the the bottom of a bullet I, right um so we truck along in terms of the history of these characters and who yeah. would be the, like who's the next pivotal introduced character in your opinion we have batman and superman so who comes next in terms of like big big names uh big big names would probably i guess really the next big big name is is wonder woman okay. um, and but she's a character that never really spoke to me. Um, right. So I don't have as much of an opinion about her history or knowledge about her history. Uh, so, but more interesting to me uh, during that early growth period was where DC was being very careful about uh, protecting its, its characters and would try vigorously to sue out of out of operation anyone that that ripped off their characters too blatantly um interestingly enough um they they failed with another big big character from a competitor Fawcett publications introduced captain marvel and oh. and that was um that was in whiz comics back in 19 I think it was 1941. Um, wow. And, and, and is that connected to the Captain Marvel that we see in the 70s and then is now portrayed in the movies? This is the Captain Marvel that we now know as Shazam, not uh -huh. the one that appears as a, a woman in the in the movies by Marvel Comics. I see. And, and that's an interesting storyline that, Will, can take us on quite a digression itself, but Fawcett's Captain Marvel was the one who was a a boy, Billy Batson, mm -hmm. who is given the powers to become Captain Marvel. It was a great wish fulfillment sort of thing for children. I think that's why the character became so hugely popular. You know, the the young boys and girls who would read the comic book could really identify with the hero more than they could with say superman whose secret identity was 
an adult reporter you know, goes to a day job every day. But Captain Marvel was was an eight year old boy. And mm. it's, you know, it's, mm, it's yeah. very exciting. And uh, and that, I think, was the main reason why, even though his powers were almost identical to those of Superman, super strength, yeah. flight, you know, this um, invulnerability, all those kinds of things. Um, DC was not able to sue him out of existence because of that major difference is that he was a child who transformed into this wish fulfillment character. So did they, what did they do? Did they buy it out or something? Well, they tried for years to, to sue them out of existence. Um, And despite their efforts, Captain Marvel actually outsold Superman during (laughs) most, most of those years until finally in the early 1950s, Things had changed I mean, over the over the course of the 1930s and 40s. Um, the, the landscape did change, and right. we saw um, you know, not just comic books, but the, the pulp fiction market. Uh, all of these these things were were on the decline, and Fawcett Publications looked and and, to my understanding, decided that their future was better followed in paperbacks mm. that was that was where that was where the market was going i think and they decided we're going to we're going to redirect our energies into the the paperback field and they just discontinued their comic book line that was the end of captain marvel at that point um until oddly enough in the early 1970s DC Comics, who had tried so vigorously to sue Captain Marvel out of existence, decided we're going to license that character from Fawcett. Nobody's using it. Uh, he's still popular. So let's, uh, let's license the character and publish new stories. The mm-hmm. difficulty with that was in the intervening years, the comic industry had seen a uh, one of DC's rivals was in the 1940s Atlas Comics, which uh, had 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 some successful publications. Probably its best known character was Captain America, <laughs> and but. Um, had essentially moved into different areas of publishing. But in the 1960s, they decided to revitalize their publishing line and renamed, rebranded themselves as Marvel Comics oh. and, and introduced a bunch of new, a bunch of new characters like the Fantastic Four yeah. and Spider-Man and the Mighty Thor and the yeah. Incredible Hulk. And they brought back Captain America and ah, and yeah, okay. and yeah, yeah. they decided to create their own character using their 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 corporate name, their new name of Marvel Comics. So they created a new Captain Marvel, who had nothing to do with the old Fawcett character. <laughs> but but you know, the, nobody was using the name, and they you know they you know, the trademark was defunct. So they Marvel Comics created a new Captain Marvel. So then in the 1970s, when DC wanted to publish comics about the original Captain Marvel, they realized 
while we can't <laughs> we can't really uh, invite the same sort of lawsuits that we used to throw <laughs> around. So they they uh, rebranded the the comic book. They still called the character Captain Marvel because that's who he is. But um, the the transformation from Billy Batson to Captain Marvel is always made by young Billy saying the magic word Shazam. And so they called the DC decided to call the comic book Shazam. Oh my gosh. That explains so much. That's amazing. I mean, that explains for one thing. I always wondered about that Captain America thing because I knew Captain America was published during the war and you'd see scenes of him cracking Nazis in the head and stuff. Right. He loses his Bucky sidekick and all that. And right. But then he gets frozen in ice and nobody sees him. Well, obviously he's frozen in ice, right? Because right. Uh, not picked up again until the rebranding. Wow. Right. Yep. Yeah, that was that was a that was a clever thing that Marvel Comics did is they said we have we own this this old character Captain America. Let's bring him back. Um, and yeah. and to say to to to, to acknowledge his long history that he had been around in the 1940s they didn't want you know a, a doddering superhero they came up with the clever notion of saying he's been frozen in ice for the last couple of decades and then as they kept publishing him uh from the 1960s into the 1970s and the 1980s the they just kept changing how long he had been frozen so you know when well, when when comics were being published, you know, when, when he was reintroduced in the 1960s, all right, he's been frozen for 20 years. By the time you know, the 1980s had come along, they were saying, well, he was he, he was frozen for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and I remember when he was part of the Civil War there in the late 80s and like in early 90s. And uh, I remember reading about him in the 80s. Um, I was never a huge fan of Marvel as I was with DC. My my love was always for Superman and for uh, Batman. I think the only exception I had in that was I loved the witty banter of Spider-Man. But I never yeah. really, I never liked the art of Steve Ditko until I got older. Um, I, and I didn't really appreciate, uh, who's the other one? Uh, um, uh, not Ditko, but Guy who did Jack, fantastic. Jack Kirby. Kirby. I never really appreciate Kirby until I go to older either. So do yeah, you have a problem? I, 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 I'm in the same boat as you. I, I liked Dick to go, I liked it go better than I think you may have. Um, mm-hmm. I never really had a problem with him, but I always saw him as old fashioned. Yeah. Um, Clunky. Yeah. Um, but Jack Kirby, uh, I, as I was always a DC guy, so I didn't really even know about Jack Kirby uh, until uh, until the 1980s when DC decided to reprint their old New Gods comics that Jack Kirby had done for them in the 70s. Oh, yeah. And that was my real introduction to Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. And it may not be Jack Kirby at his finest, but it's definitely Jack Kirby at some of his most creative mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and i found it mind-blowing yeah. I, I i i'd never seen anything like that before mm. and i i think probably people who grew up more on marvel comics would would have a very different opinion of of 
the later Jack Kirby work than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, when I discovered those New Gods comics, I thought this this guy is fantastic. Oh. I, it, it's, a, it's a completely different voice than I'd ever encountered in comic books. Uh, it's it's uh, it's mythic. It's it's it, it's 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 comics writ large. Yeah, that's um, the word. Yeah, and in my opinion, it was part of a beginning movement to move comics out of the realm of pow, bam, sock into yeah. real mythos and real story. Well, I won't say real storytelling, but storytelling that was incredibly powerful, I thought. Now, right. now let me touch on something before I, I move to this other issue about the you know the shift in comics. Yeah, because you still want to get back to, to Frank Miller. Yeah, right. Um, exactly. I want to get back to Frank Miller eventually. But um, we talked about these different ages over the gold etc etc um yeah. what are these distinctions in comic book history when we talk about the silver age of comics okay well it's it's pretty simple until you get until you get past our youth um, okay the, the the what's generally called the golden age of comics are those those early years of the the superheroes the mm-hmm. 1930s 1940s that's the golden age when these characters were first created. It was it still had the the uh, the blush of youth and enthusiasm. Uh, the innocence of of these characters. They were created and drawn for for a young audience that devoured them, and they were they they were what they were. They were they were good adventure stories that anyone could read mm-hmm. um, good, good evil was evil yeah yeah okay yep. very very straightforward um no moral ambiguity whatsoever right um 19 uh, as i said in, you know, the industry changed and in the 1950s um a lot of superheroes stopped being published and um there were still there was still a variety of comics being published. There were still romance comics and war comics, but only a few of the really big names of superheroes were still getting published. So there were still Superman comics, still Batman comics, still Wonder Woman comics, but uh, on the whole, that was pretty much it um, until the, the until the the late 1950s. Um, when DC Comics decided to reintroduce some of their some of their other superhero characters, mm-hmm. and what they did is they took the names of their Golden Age characters, uh, like Green Lantern and the Flash, mm-hmm. and created brand new characters using those names. Right, right. And because they were completely different, completely unattached to those earlier stories, um, it is viewed as ushering in a new era of comic publishing. And those new versions of these characters were able to interact with Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. And that then became what's called the Silver Age of comics. So in the late 50s through the 60s, we had the Silver Age of comics, and as I already said, uh, Marvel comics came into existence around that same time, introducing their characters: the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Thor, the Hulk, 
the revived Captain America, right. uh, Doctor Strange. Um, so with DC creating new versions of their classic characters and Marvel creating a whole bunch of brand new characters, we have the Silver Age of comics. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, and then we move into the 70s. Like you said, our youth, it gets a little bit more complicated. My father it, to think that a lot of the complication was because you had people began to publish in other realms these, uh, as he said, druggy comics and yeah. insidious was, comics, weird tales and things yeah. like that. Underground, underground yeah. comics. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that begins to per, to to almost bleed into the major studios, if you will, the Marvel and the DC yeah, publication. I, th I think you're right about that. In the seventies, we. We we will generally talk about comics in the '70s and into the '80s, not all of the '80s, um, as being the Bronze Age of comics. Not yeah. because not because uh, they're you know a new generation of characters, and we're at this point now we're using the same batch of characters that DC and Marvel have been publishing since the Silver Age, um, but. Uh, perhaps a, a, a new tone has been introduced, uh, uh, a greater awareness of of um, public a public awareness of sorts right. that uh, DC has been is is recognized for publishing some noteworthy comics in the early '70s that addressed drug use, um, like uh, Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy. Um, apparently took his his name to heart and was a, a druggie and and so yeah the the we saw these classic characters being put in new in new situations that w nobody would ever have thought of you know, 10 15 years before um, mm -hmm. but likewise at the same time um other new things were happening in the industry, like the underground comics, the and what was becoming more prevalent were smaller publishers popping up, becoming what is generally referred to as independent comics, that they weren't Marvel or DC. So they were other publishers that were trying to appeal to that same market, not necessarily to the, you know, the, you know, the, the market of the underground comics, which were, you know, the, the, you know, college kids who might be looking for, you know, drug references, situations that you could never publish in, uh, a mainstream comic book. Those are generally what we would refer to as the underground comics. But the independent comics, on the other hand, were coming out of that same tradition as Marvel and DC, but being done by smaller publishers. Um, and in many cases, trying to be, trying to attract the, the creative personnel, the writers and artists from the major publishers, Marvel and DC, by giving them ownership of their characters. Hmm. So these independent comic publishers were saying, come come to us and you can create a comic and you get to own it, which is something that poor Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster didn't get to do with Superman, uh, right. that 
Jack Kirby didn't get to do with the Hulk. Um, and so a lot of big publishers or a lot of big uh, creators went to these independent publishers and it, in, the, in the late Bronze Age, and we saw publishers like Pacific Comics publishing um, new comics by Mike Grell, who'd cut his teeth doing Green Lantern for DC. Um, we had we had uh, 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 Howard Chaikin working for First Comics out of Chicago, doing a, a comic called American Flag, which I think may be coming up again in our discussion when we finally do circle back to Frank Miller. Um, yeah, it was it was an exciting time to be a comics reader because there were there was a new a new variety that was available to us. So for for me as somebody who had grown up reading my my Batman and Aquaman, um, you know, this was this was a, a a new vista of options that were being made available to me. And and I loved it. I, I became a big fan of publishers like First Comics, and and some of these other smaller publishers. And and, and did you ever read what was it? Um, it wasn't Star Lord. That wasn't the name of it. But there was one I remember. I just loved it, and it was a science fiction one. And he, uh, he gosh, I'll have to find the name of it instead of stumbling all over it. But I just he had a he had a goatee, a yellow goatee, and. Um, he had uh, a cat was his, his one of his other characters in there. And it was like reading these stories where they had no connection to any of the superheroes that I'd grown up with. And yet there were these great stories, science fiction stories. I'll have to find that character. Um, I, that, but, sound, that sounds vaguely like a DC comic to me. And I think, I think you might be remembering Star Hunters. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe it was Star Hunters. Yeah, that does sound familiar. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. Um, but I, well, I, 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 that would be great if it turns out that that you remember Star Hunters with fondness because I used to really enjoy that comic. So huh. <laughs> that would be nice if we had that in common. Same blood there. Well, hey, yeah. let me ask you something. What about um, there's this character uh, that uh, that is considered to be part of the downfall of comics because if we're doing the history of comics from bronze. Yeah. We had that glut of comics in the 90s that occurred. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people attribute that glut and downfall of comics to Rob Liefeld. Yeah. Uh, do you have any insight into that in terms of our history of comics here? Well, that was, that was interesting. That, was, um, that came out of an, uh, one, of the, one of the smaller publishers was Malibu Comics. And they, had, they actually had a bunch of different brands um, and I'm not entirely sure why they published under a variety of different names simultaneously, um, but they, it, it, some, some of their titles came out under, as if it was published by Malibu Comics. Some came out as if they were published by Eternity Comics. Um, uh, some of them came out under the Adventure Comics brand. Um, so they had a lot of, a, a lot of logos you know, in the top left corner, they would say, this is the publisher. Um, I don't know why they thought it was better to diversify in that way. But Malibu, I'm just for, as a shorthand, I'm going to refer to that group of titles uh, as being all published by Malibu. Um, they, 
were approached by Actually, I'm not sure if they were approached or if they did the approaching, but one way or the other, they announced a new line of comics that were going to be published by a bunch of, they were going to publish a new line of comics that were going to be created by a number of high profile artists from Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so folks who were hugely popular, like, uh, Todd McFarlane, who was drawing Spider-Man and oh, yeah. writing Spider-Man at the time, um, uh, and uh, Jim Lee, who was hugely popular with the X-Men, and um, and Rob Liefeld or Liefeld—I'm not sure how you pronounce his name—who um, started working with DC, doing uh, a, a miniseries called Hawk and Dove, and then got. Uh, the opportunity to work for Marvel and worked on their new mutants comic, which he somehow mm-hmm. managed to uh, transmogrify into uh, X-Force. And that became hugely popular. Anyway, these artists, I think all felt that they were not getting the appreciation and the remuneration that they deserved from, from their publishers mm-hmm. that, they were seeing huge numbers being being sold at the at the comic stores, which is another digression we we could have taken was hmm. the the rise of the the direct market for publishing instead of comics being published uh, and sold mostly on newsstands or in drugstores and those kind of things um, in the late seventies and early eighties. What became the direct market really proliferated where comics were being sold to comic stores directly um, yeah, on a, all... uh, uh, yeah on a non-returnable basis that was the difference between yep. between newsstands yeah anyway so um, we the 1980s had seen huge numbers of, of sales for for the some of these titles in in numbers that hadn't been seen in decades. Um, mm. And I think uh, to a large degree, it was a, a, a bubble. It was a speculative marketplace where people were thinking some of these comics are, are, are hugely popular. And if I buy up a bunch of them, I'll be able to send my kids to college someday with them. <laughs> and well, it didn't really work because uh. if, if some of these titles sold in you know a million copies, um, well, it's only because you know, some speculative investors bought a hundred copies, and you, 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 if there are that many copies available, you can't resell them later for a, 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 a profit. Yeah. So it just caused a collapse, and it just market. it yeah. Well, anyway, before the collapse. Um, at this point, these artists were seeing that the, their titles were selling in huge numbers and thought, we need to be getting paid more for this. And they weren't. And they thought, well, we'll just take our talents elsewhere. elsewhere. And um, they formed a new imprint that Malibu Comics was going to publish called Image Comics. So this was just another imprint that this this small independent publisher 
was going to publish called Image Comics mm. with with a number of big name comic book creators attached. And Image became a huge success in the early 90s. So much so that it started uh, to really, for the first time, saw a an independent publisher rivaling what we saw as the big two of Marvel and DC. Yeah. And Image eventually spun out away from Malibu and became its own publishing company. Um, and, uh, and Malibu itself ended up getting purchased by Marvel. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know where else to go with that. Yeah. Very <laughs> short, I guess you had all these different independent comic book houses that were producing at a rate that was actually rather respectable, it seems like. It, yeah. Up into the uh, takes us up, up into the aughts and the whole MCU and and uh, development of the movies, which we don't need to get into right now. But it does it does prompt me to circle back to what you know what we were originally talking about. Sometime around there in the eighties, I think it was eighty six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right when I was yeah, I was in high school, so eighty six. Um, you had the Dark Knight came out by Frank Miller, and in the right. same year, it's either the same year or the year before, you had Alan Moore's Watch. I think it was the same year. Same year? Okay, okay. And those, in my opinion, they both changed the comic book landscape or they or they indicated a change. I don't know which. But they changed the landscape radically, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. And um, I think Miller's changed it to for the better. And I think that Watchmen changed it for the worse. Uh, do you have ideas or insights in that? I I. I can respond to that. I might almost take the exact opposite opinion. <laughs> I think I think Watchmen may have changed things for the better. I okay. think the Dark Knight changed things for the worse. Okay. But they did both change things. I it might just be oversimplifying it to try to okay. say I think they both together changed the comic book industry as we know it. And to blame one for the bad things and to credit another for the good things uh, oversimplified is may oversimplify it. No, you're right. But, but, but I would say probably to me, the most interesting thing about this is that it was almost a reaction to the competition that the, that the major publishers were facing that Mm. spawned those two publications um we had marvel and dc being the major players that as they have been and continue to be but they were recognizing in the 1980s that these independent publishers were getting a larger and larger share of the marketplace and getting a lot of attention and getting a lot of industry awards for the things that they were publishing these were these independent publishers were publishing really good comics and the fans really liked them and, and they needed to respond to it. Otherwise they would be viewed as stuck in the past and, and neither Marvel nor DC wanted that Um, Marvel took, let me back up. I think we can, in retrospect, look back at the at what Marvel and DC did in the '80s as being a response to that independent comics market, and they they each 
responded in a different way. Mm-hmm. And Marvel saw what was what was working for the independent comics publishing marketplace and said, we can do that too. And so they launched a a brand called Epic Comics that allowed their their creative uh, writers and artists to publish new titles that they would own. So they were saying, you don't have to go to an independent publisher to own your own new material. We'll publish it for you under our Epic comic brand. And so we saw titles like Dreadstar by Jim Starlin. That's um, the one. That's the one. I'm sorry. Oh, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. Blonde goatee. Dreadstar. Yeah. Starlin. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, forget Star Hunters. That that, that was a stinker. Um, it was a stinker that I loved, but it would have been nice to find somebody else who loved it too. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, Jim Starlin. I remember that name now. Jim Starlin. Right. Yeah. He's right. he's been he he's gotten quite a bit of attention the last few years because of some of the some of the things that he created for Marvel have his wow. his. Generated an awful lot of revenue for Marvel Comics mm. um, in the form of Thanos, who became the big baddie for the the, sure. the MCU movies. Sure. Wow. Okay. But 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 Epic Comics was the spinoff from Marvel then. Yeah. That- so Marvel was- decided we can publish, we can we can do independent comics too. We'll just call them Epic Comics, and so they you know a lot of a lot of well-known Marvel creators did new original comics that they created and owned through the Epic Comics line of of Marvel. So that's how Marvel responded to the the independent comics boom of the 1980s. Um, DC, on the other hand, saw what was happening and decided... And, and thought that what was working for that industry wasn't so much the creative ownership as it was the variety that mm. was appealing to people. So DC started to publish a lot of different sorts of comics that they'd never had done before. Instead of just your standard superhero comics, they started publishing a lot of bizarre, weird stranger kinds of titles um, okay. and 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 it just really diversified their line hmm. and in that process they recognized we can do some new and interesting publishing approaches and one of them was what if we do a really upscale batman comic i mean we've got great characters everybody loves what if we do something new and different with him yeah. and so they thought they they looked around and figured out what's the right way to do this and they they had a pitch from writer artist frank miller who was coming off of some huge successes doing daredevil for marvel remember uh, that what's that i remember that yeah i remember that yeah daredevil. and and so frank miller said how about if i do this this 
story of an older Batman, you know, coming back out of retirement. Um, you know, he's he's grizzled and not quite as not, not as youthful anymore. Um, and anyway, so they DC leapt at the opportunity to have you know this new approach to the character as a sort of an alternate you know, <laughs> I'm gonna it, it used to amuse fans when DC would label a comic as an imaginary story because when you get right down to it they're all imaginary stories right um, but every once in a while they do something different and say this is so out there we don't want anyone to get confused about the fact that you know this this doesn't really change what we usually do it's like yeah. oh we'll just do an imaginary story where superman marries lois lane it's like okay that's fun we get to see that but we'll clearly label it this is an imaginary story it's not part uh, of the so. not part of the regular continuity yeah. okay. and and this this uh Dark Knight story that Frank Miller was proposing was going to be another imaginary story mm. about a possible future for Batman. Mm. And they, and when, when they were making their plans for it, they realized this is something very special. Let's, let's you know, come up with a, a way to present it. That's different. And so they did, uh, they, they published the, the Dark Knight in four square bound comic books, which mm -hmm. we had not ever seen before. You know, it's a, it was a different approach to the standard, you know, saddle stitched, you know, stapled thing on the side. This right. was like a, a, a little, a, a little album of, of comics and very, very classy, a very classy look and presentation. Um, to what they hoped would would fit the 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 mature and sophistication of the story that Frank Miller was trying to tell. Mm -hmm. So it was a big publishing event, um, and and it was hugely successful. But it was also we need to remind people it was an imaginary story. You know, from that take is, is to say. This is not the Batman that DC was publishing every month in Batman comics and Detective Comics. This was a, a this is completely separate from the DC continuity as we knew it. And yet, it kind of became canon after a while. It you know? kind of did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you had a number of other stories that were told, not immediately, but soon after that, that were dark and grisly and violent. And right. And that's and that's the thing that I find disappointing about the Dark Knight is that it was it was a very well crafted story, mm. but it was it was dark it was it was um, mature it was yeah it was not it was not fun to read but <laughs> it was very interesting right. I I thoroughly enjoyed it right. But the ramifications of what came afterward, I think, are what 
colors it in my memory now is that I can't look at the dark night anymore without seeing what came after. And, and before I go too far into that, I do want to mention Watchmen, which you mentioned came out the same year. DC also published this 12 issue series called Watchmen that um, was another new new take, a new approach to the superhero story. And Alan Moore decided to tell a, a very interesting story. Um, mm-hmm. It's so it was it, it was such a, a unique take on superheroes to say here's here's these characters in a real world kind of setting it's what what would it really be like if mm-hmm. if our if our world had these kind of characters with superpowers in them mm-hmm. and um, when Alan Moore presented this story it was meant to be utilizing a bunch of characters that DC owned but hadn't used yet. Um, mm-hmm. They had bought they had bought out the characters from another publisher that had gone out of business called Charlton oh. Comics. But they're so actual they, characters. Yes. So DC had bought a bunch of characters from Charlton Comics and was looking for a way to to introduce them into their publishing line. And Alan Moore wrote up this proposal and said, I've got this great idea that we could use these characters. And yep. he presented it and editorial from what I understand loved this presentation, mm-hmm. but recognized that if they published it using these characters that they had just bought, they could never use those characters again. Oh, not at all. Wow. Really? No. I mean, it's like we could publish this, but it would ruin these characters for us. <laughs> Either they either they're dead or you never yeah. want to read a story about them at all. Right. So editorial, when they got this proposal from Alan Moore, said, we love it, but and we want to publish it, but change the characters. Um, so it was supposed to be about the, the these old Charlton characters. So uh, Alan Moore said, all right, well, I'll just make them original characters. And that um, and so who was supposed to be Captain Adam became um, uh, Dr. Manhattan. Um, Blue Beetle became, um, what's his name? Night Owl? Night Owl? Night Owl, yeah. Yeah. Um, Nightshade became, uh, oh, what's the woman's name? Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, well, anyway, so these these, these were, you you can draw direct parallels between the characters that were ultimately published in Watchmen and these older characters from Charlton and DC did ultimately publish fairly successful series about Captain Adam and Blue Beetle uh, and the others. Uh, And and so they, there was a win-win for DC. They bought the characters. They have been using them for years. They're very happy with that. And they got this Watchmen series out of it from Alan Moore, mm-hmm. um, which you know, was another a new take, a deconstruction of the superhero sure. whole idea to say, instead of just accepting that superheroes are wonderful, happy do-gooders, mm-hmm. uh, the Watchmen re-explored that and said, but really in the real world, 
what would these people with these kind of powers be like and what would they do and how would how would the world change because of their presence yes yeah and it's and i find the watchman fascinating and there there are characters in there like dr manhattan that i think are very valuable for the landscape to think about he's sort of like what would you know because the whole um injustice gods among us that comes later it talks about that what would happen if superman really got angry and and put his fist through joker's face you know that kind of thing yeah. dr dr manhattan is one of my favorites but my you know i've always had a sort of antipathy towards it because it did as you said deconstruct the superhero i mean he's right if these people had these powers they would be they would dominate other people and all their vices would be magnified and yeah. so the whole becomes sort of a commentary on that power crops and absolute power crops absolutely idea but for me it was like i don't know if i want to see my green lanterns and my my spider-mans or whatever to go that that far i don't know if i want that right uh, i want to see heroes that are still heroic and something noble about them i do too and i think that's the unfortunate legacy of both dark knight and watchmen mm. is mm. that after those came out in 1986 and were really the publishing event of the year for the comics industry, everybody wanted to, to jump on that bandwagon. It was like 1939 again, only, yeah. only it was uh, <laughs> instead of let's all have our own upbeat superheroes, it's let's have our own dark, gritty, violent. Yes. Uh, yeah, so all these characters that we knew and loved suddenly changed, yes. and and even though the Dark Knight was supposed to be an imaginary story about Batman later in his career, being dark and violent and gritty, suddenly DC decided, well, that's what the fans want, and yeah. the regular monthly Batman comic gradually became darker and grittier and mm -hmm. less pleasant and you know, more violent. Less and pleasant. What's that? Less pleasant, right. Less exactly. pleasant. Yeah. 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 And, and it was, it got to be tedious actually. I remember I was watching, there was X-Men movie or something, the second or third one, and they're all wearing black leather all the time. And everyone's wearing yeah. black leather and what, you know, how much black leather can we actually have? It's tedious. It was really <laughs> You know, it's one of the reasons why I actually like the Deadpool movies, because yeah. Deadpool was started mm -hmm. off as a Rob Liefeld character, became quickly a kind of a joke, a parody. And the movie parodies that because it's all this violence, over-the-top violence, which is just, it's absurd. It's like you can't right. help but look at it and laugh. Um, but there is, you know, mm -hmm. there is something about that nobility of the characters and the honor of the characters that got lost somewhere along the line. And I just, I don't know, it, it, I get upset about it because I see all the, the comics and I see the movies as, again, a reflection of the society, but also forming the society. Right. So, you know, I don't know what to make of the fact that you get, I don't remember what the, the Batman series was, but there was a Batman series where he was all demonic and he was wearing these spikes everywhere. And it was just constant, <laughs> you know, violence. It was like, that's not, that's not Batman anymore, you know, right. but you might as well. I don't know. You might as well just write a story about uh, demons, you know, and, and, and there was actually, what was that? It was Spawn, you know, Spawn actually came out about demons. Right. And that, that was, that was, uh, that was Todd McFarlane who yeah. was hugely popular doing Spider-Man. And when he 
jumped ship from Marvel and helped form Image Comics. Uh, that was his that was his project was Spawn, which is still going thirty yep. years later. Wow. Well, yeah. you know, that raises the question then uh, that uh, I think is kind of the big question for me. And I'll ask you about what you think. What do you think these the comics, what place do they have in a society? Are they something which um, are worthy of this kind of, I don't know, anxiety almost from the fans? Or is it just is it just entertainment? Um, what do, you, do you have any insight on that? I don't think I have a whole lot of insight on that. Of course, they're they're worthy of of, of fans' passions. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would be reluctant to. I don't want to be an old fuddy-duddy who just wants all the kids <laughs> to get off my lawn, um, <laughs> because I I don't read the modern. Marvel and DC comics anymore. I gave up on them. I I don't like them anymore. And, and I'm, I I do feel like we're in a wonderful age now of reprints. Mm -hmm. The, the, The publishers have realized that there is a market for collected editions of their, their older material. Mm -hmm. And I've been buying a lot of, collected volumes of books from from the 70s and the 80s and it's that's what i i i enjoyed reading them when i was a kid i still enjoy reading them and when i and when i dip my toe into what's being published today i i think i i go in with optimism i think oh that looks good and and it's more times than not i'm wildly disappointed by yep. what i see coming out of the <laughs> modern comics Hey, I'm the same way. Either disappointed or just bored, right? Yeah. Bored. Um, the only thing I really find myself excited over is when I see somebody doing a movie version that might be, you know, when John Carter came out, for instance. Yeah. Uh, I was really excited. I actually loved that movie. And then it Me got, too. got completely cashed by the industry itself. Um, when they made, uh, when they made um, Logan, you know, the Wolverine movie. I, right. I love that movie. Um, when, when they are making this new Batman coming out, I'm actually going to, I think I'm going to enjoy it. I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, it, what's, what's interesting to me is that I, I grew up as a DC guy and sounds like you did as well, Yeah. but for the last 10, 15 years, whatever it's been, I've found the Marvel movies have been far more satisfying to me yeah. than anything that has been done with the DC characters. And, and, and I think it is because there's a lot more optimism in the Marvel movies. Yeah. They are fun. They are noble. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. I don't see that so much in the the DC films, the, 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 you know, the, the Batman begins and the dark Knight movies, you know, the, the ones that literally use the name the dark knight um same same title that frank miller used on his 1986 series it's just it's too dark it's it it's not it's not the the same character that i grew up recognizing as one that sees that justice is more than just 
blowing the bad guy away. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I agree. And I and I really, you know, it's interesting along those lines. Um, not to go too deep in the woods, but in the Marvel movie, in the MCU universe, where Iron Man sacrifices himself twice in order to save his comrades, I think that's an amazing image of the sacrifice of yourself for the sake of somebody else. Mm-hmm. When it occurs in the third Batman movie, which is the Dark Knight Rises, I think, yeah. that was such a letdown for me because I thought, you know, here's this guy and he's got this opportunity to save all of Gotham. He just has to fly the, the bomb out there, but he's going to die. But, you know, that's what a hero does. But no, he doesn't. He fixes the <laughs> autopilot. Then he shows up in a right. cafe somewhere. I'm like, what the deuce was that? So time and again, it seems like for me, the, the DC movies fall down and then the Marvel movies are the ones that are telling these great stories. Right. Yeah. And that's, it, it's, I, I can enjoy the Marvel movies and, and I do. I just wish that they were about characters that I loved the way yeah. I loved the DC characters. And yes. I can, True. I can really dislike the DC movies. And I think maybe part of it is because of what they're doing to characters that I do love. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and using them, yeah, right, and using them in ways which I would never even think possible. Right. Uh, yeah, there's, so. there's no, there's no inherent nobility to Batman, as depicted in those Dark Knight movies. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting, and not that doesn't even bring up all the side, you know, the side things. The uh, what was the TV show Arrow and the TV show Batwoman or Batgirl? Oh yeah, you know all yeah. that other schlock that came out so yeah well you know there's an ongoing conversation Ray, which uh i i find very invigorating i i'm of the, no i i mean i'm of the opinion that this kind of discussion is where most people have their interest it's not when talking about the odyssey or or talking about dante all oh, those are great works i mean don't get me wrong but it's this sort of thing it's this cultural um thing that's produced by normal people and it's enjoyed by normal people and it it kind of just shows the the culture as a culture um, well it's interesting that you would you know just name drop the odyssey because in a lot of ways the the superheroes that the, 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 the superhero universes that dc and marvel have constructed over the last several decades are a modern mythology yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah, they take those old characters, right? The the gods and the heroes from yeah. the ancient, re reconstitute them. Sure, sure. And in the in a way, that's why one can say that the um, the philosophical observation that Alan Moore makes is, is hearkening back to that because the gods and heroes of the ancient world they were examined in the same way. You look at Oedipus, for instance. Now he puts right. his eyes out and. You look at Her- Hercules or Heracles and how he ends up dying in fire after all of his right. foibles. And they and they weren't always as <laughs> as as uh, um, as clean cut as the golden age version of Superman was. Um, you'll 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 see a you know, Heracles or Odysseus with you know, hmm. with with uh, yeah inherent chinks in their armor Um, there's a favorite story of mine with heracles when he's being taught early and he can't get his big meaty fingers to play the lyre correctly so he loses his temper and he smashes it over the head of his tutor named linus 
and kills his tutor, you know, and, and that's why he has to go do those labors. And that's always been an amusing story to me because here's a guy with absolutely amazing strength, but no control over his temper. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And it's an amazing thing how we keep retelling those stories. Um, well, what, what, but that, before you, you move off from that though, it does suggest to me that perhaps I've been hasty in my dismissal of the modern take on these superheroes mm. that um, you know i do want i do want to see the purity of these characters as i know them but <laughs> we uh, we 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 can probably find something something useful in exploring them when we see them as less than ideal yeah well, I would say I, th I think you're on to something there, because then we move into a sort of philosophical thought about this. And, and if I were to suggest anything, it would be that those Silver Age and those Golden Age superheroes fit into an era where I think people trusted their government and they trusted the structures of society to continue to work. Um, and there wasn't this this cultural movement to. Um, I don't know, doubt that things were going in the right direction. And yeah. now what do we have? I think we have this, this ever since, um, ever since the dropping of the bomb, I would say in the forties, we have had a movement to begin questioning, is this really the right way? Is this really what we want? Uh, is commercialism really the best thing on the face of the planet? You know, and I think that the superheroes kind of reflect that because they begin to have the same chinks, as you said, in their armor that the, that the preconceived notions of society have as well. Um, yeah. Well, so. I if the if the hope is that these characters can help shape society, then I would like to see them more optimistic. If, well, on the other hand, they merely reflect society, then that helps explain why they aren't. Yes, and it may be, and I think you're absolutely right on that, Ray. It may be that the time for that critique has been valuable but now maybe we're living in an era where we have to have people step forward artists and writers step forward and begin crafting again as you said at the beginning a mythos yeah a forward which yeah, was something something aspirational yeah which reflects itself in the hero heroism of these characters these individuals so i'm still waiting to see it but I hope it'll see it in my lifetime. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. I have to sign off, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really great discussion, I think. Um, and I really value your, your, uh, your take on this. Any, any last things you would say or anything you'd say to people that enjoy this same sorts of thing that, that we've been talking about or any last thoughts? Well, I'm just grateful for your willingness to, to bring me onto your program here so we could, discuss these things i i i have opinions and it, as we mentioned before it's a a joy to share them with somebody who doesn't just roll his eyes while i'm talking <laughs> god forbid no as i say I, I i love talking about it so um maybe we can have a future talk we talked about the uh, marvel universe more extensively perhaps <laughs> and uh, whether thank you will whether or not that last movie was a good movie or a turd, too, because I have opinions <laughs> about that. Oh, yeah. I, I recall seeing 
a comment from you about that. Yep. You, you, you do yep. have opinions on that one. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that's for a future date. Ray, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that concludes another episode of Let's Do Lunch with Avalon Mentors podcast. Our merriment has been of that kind which exists between people who have, as C.S. Lewis said, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Thank you all for listening and hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy the show, would you kindly thumb the like button and also give the show a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on. Until next time, Cast off the works of darkness and put upon you the armor of light.